Um, I'd like to open us in prayer. And as we celebrate Palm Sunday today, and what that means for us, um, what it means for the gospel, and as we go in prayer, may, may we consider this, that Palm Sunday tells us that as Christ was riding a donkey's colt to Jerusalem, what it says is, is that he stayed the course. He was going to go to Jerusalem. And that means he was going to die. And so when we get to that place in Scripture, what it's telling us is, is that Christ is showing us he is going to be faithful. And he is going to accomplish the work. And so as we go before the Lord in prayer, and even as we go through our text in 1 Samuel today, I hope that we will be reminded of what this day represents. is that the King is showing us on that day in Scripture that He is going to be faithful all the way to the ultimate humiliation on the cross. All the way there. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you and as we celebrate Palm Sunday, or as many of us have family members that are sick and friends that are sick and suffering, I pray that we will be reminded that that leads us to fellowship, participation with our suffering Lord suffering King. The one who is faithful to continue the journey. He's, he continues on to Jerusalem. And He continues there to die. As people are looking to exalt Him, He knows that He is simply going to be humiliated and tortured and then suffer the wrath of God. So Father, I pray that we would be lifted up by the truth of the gospel that we would be reminded that He was willing to suffer with us, for us, so that we may dwell with Him. I thank You that You chose. You chose to give us the perfect sacrifice to give us exactly what we must have to be reconciled to You. Thank You for the cross. And as the reality of it brings sorrow, mourning, I pray that we would rejoice. And even if we come to a place of tears, I pray that we would rejoice that Jesus was willing to, to keep going, to continue on a path of faithfulness all the way to the cross. Father, bless our church. We pray for Your hand upon us. And we pray that Your Spirit would dwell here in a unique and a powerful way, assuring us that we are Your children, that we've been adopted into Your family, assuring us of Your love for us and therefore of Your gift of salvation through the death of Christ for us. Father, as we look into Your Word in 1 Samuel 4, Father, may we see our Lord. May we see the gospel. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.
We're in 1 Samuel 4, and I hope to do a quick catch-up of where we are today. Uh, Last week, we went through and read through the famous account of Samuel hearing from God, where God said, Samuel, Samuel, and on the fourth time, Samuel, finally realizing it was the Lord, responded to say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Now, this led to God's Word coming to Samuel, and then Samuel receiving it, hearing it, receiving it, and then communicating it fully, uh, which we are told in the Scriptures that this led to him being established and shown as a true and faithful prophet of the Lord. And now we're about to go through a section of Scripture and start it here and continue over the next couple of weeks where Samuel will not even be mentioned for some time. So it's almost as if now the story continues. Samuel has just spoken the word and the story continues without him involved. And so last week, um, at the end of our reading, we saw that the word of the Lord had come to Israel. The word of the Lord had come to Samuel and then Samuel's word to Israel And that the death of Eli and his sons uh, would come about. And so what we are seeing today, what we are going to read today is how that word came true. Uh, How, as as, uh, 1 Samuel 3 puts it, how his words did not fall to the ground, but instead uh, came true being a confirmation of that word. So I hope that you'll keep this in mind. As we read through 1 Samuel 4, we're going to read through the whole chapter. As we read through that, keep this passage in mind from chapter 3, where it says, Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. That's what we're about to read about now. 1 Samuel 4, verses 1 through 22, if you would follow along. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And so this people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came out into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into our camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. 
And so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? And then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So, I hope we will see this after all of that reading. That the glory of the Lord resides in the presence of faith and repentance. And as we look at that, I want us to start with this. That God does not forsake His judgment. God does not forsake His judgment. And this, the judgment of God, this is what has been looming over this story. And so as we have been getting introduced to Samuel... And as we have been reminded of, recalling, or or perhaps hearing for the first time about his entrance into the world, about Hannah's faithfulness, her committing Samuel to the Lord's service, and and about about Samuel hearing God's call to him, and then Samuel's faithfulness to speak the Word of God in his fullness. As we've been hearing these stories... This is, looming, this is looming over all this. That Israel has departed from faithfulness. That they are a barren nation. They are living in a barren land where God's word has departed from them. The time of Moses and Joshua is over. The time of the parting of the Red Sea, the crossing of the Jordan, that is in the past. Perhaps it has even now become a legend, a story that has passed on over time that... Uh, does not have true meaning to Israel. Worship and religion at this time are practiced in a going through the motions kind of way to the point where true devotion to the Lord that Hannah had on the day of uh, at the temple where she's weeping and crying out to God, that's not recognized. And it's seen as drunkenness instead of true devotion. 
And as this story has been endearingly passed down, and perhaps if you were in children's Sunday school at one point in your life, you've probably heard of the story of Samuel hearing from God. The setting is one of God's righteous judgment is either coming or either it will be forsaken. And the reason we have to realize that is because Israel has departed. They have departed from the faith. They have departed from the presence of God. And this is a glaring, and a glaring realization of that is when we look into the lives of their priests, Hophni and Phinehas. As we see them, the leaders of Israel at this point, Eli's sons, we see that this is a picture of the nation. This is where the nation is. And so... As that is looming over, we see Israel go into battle with the Philistines. And the Philistines defeat them. They kill 4,000 of their men on the field. And this is what should be noticed as we get get to this place. Just before this, the word of God had returned to the land. That's what we see at the end of chapter 3, even the beginning of verse 4. God's voice is not silent anymore. And then straight into battle and into defeat. Just following the word of the Lord, returning. And so, as we look, especially at this first point, this is not fun to talk about. Sometimes it can be a challenging thing to even discuss amongst family and friends. As a matter of fact, it's what gives people what they may even think is a platform to ridicule the God of the Bible or to question the the validity of all that they find in front of them in the Bible. Which is to say, we don't really want to deal with this indication that people may really get what they are, in fact, do. And I think perhaps it's because a God that forsakes judgment is much more manageable. He's much more easier to embrace. However, here we're clearly faced with him. And so let me ask, should we be committed to a God who forsakes judgment? A God who judging is not a part of his uh, actions. It's not a part of being a, a God who judges is not a part of who he is. A God who never judges wrong, wrongs. Should we be committed to that God? And the only way to answer that question, if we are to answer that question with a yes... The only way to answer that question with a yes is if to say we are okay with continuing evil and chaos and corruption. And while that may be okay with some, I think in actuality the God of the Bible who is the one who looks upon the world and who looks upon Israel at this time in their history and he says this is not okay with me. He is the one who looks upon Israel and he is the one who looks upon us now. And he says, if you are to be the light of the nations, then the world will remain dark. This is what he says when he looks upon them at this time and when he looks upon us. And so he is, this is the God. The God of the Bible is the one that looks upon the hearts of men and women like you and me. And there is judgment because it is not okay With him when there is anger and when there is hate and when there is covetousness. And God is God is the he is the God that gets involved. 
He is the God that intervenes if you are not being renewed and conformed to Christ. And actually, this is a very precious thing. It's a very loving and gracious thing about His character that He is willing to do. And it is so loving of God for Him to not be okay with you if you are like Hophni and Phinehas. It is so loving of Him that He's willing to get involved. It's so loving to Him that He is willing to be a God who judges. I want to mention this experience that I had years ago. and This was in 7th grade class. And we had a brand, there was a brand new teacher in our school that year. And it was a young man, probably right out of college. And as I look back on this, I see he was, he had a passion for education and learning. He was very committed to it. And I could tell. But it was quickly realized that if you talked in class, he was going to overlook that. So it became, immediately we knew this was a fun teacher. This is a fun class. It soon came to the point where we knew we could tell jokes in class and laugh while he's teaching and he's going to just keep teaching and he's not going to address it. So we continue to do that. Soon it's like this is like a free period. Do you all ever have a class like this? It's a free period. We don't have to do anything if we don't want to. There's, and then order begins to... Things begin to get out of order. Soon... I recall other teachers from that, that hallway would come into our class to try to maintain order and try to call people out and send people out of the classroom while he's there. Soon the principal gets involved. And I remember this class, there being spitballs and wads of paper being thrown at different people and even up at the board while he is teaching. And so... This ended up leading to a classroom where kids, peers of mine, started requesting, asking their parents to please get them out of that class. Because what happened is this became a stressful environment, an unnerving situation that was there. And this teacher chose to forsake judgment. And with that, order was forsaken, learning was forsaken, and integrity was forsaken. All in this classroom because he chose to forsake judgment. And that is to show, uh, that, that illustration is just to tell us, I wanted to give that to show that God's choice to not forsake judgment is also His choice to not forsake love, to not forsake honesty, to not forsake sacrifice, all of those things. And He has not forsaken any of those. And that judgment is rooted in His love. And it's rooted in His goodness. And therefore, this is what the Bible tells us, that the God of the Bible has an unwavering commitment to redeeming the world. So consider this when we think of His judgment here. He's got an unwavering commitment to redeeming the world wherein the new heavens and the new earth will be a place where only righteousness will dwell. And then we, those in Christ, will dwell here because He has chosen to judge that which is evil and that which is not a reflection of His character. And that has clearly happened here in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Israel has been defeated. 
The elders are consulted, they gather together, and we do see a hint of wisdom within the context of the elders here because in verse 3 of chapter 4, we see that they say, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? So they, they realize this is the, the Lord is involved here. Now, why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines? They understand this. They understand that God brought the sword. And yet so much wisdom is lacking because their solution to find the secret power, the missing link which they believe will unleash the power of God, they believe it's the Ark of the Covenant. And so they appeal for the Ark of the Covenant of of the Lord to be brought out of the temple. And they ask for it to be brought to the field. And this... To be fair, as we look at this and we see the history of the Ark of the Covenant of God, to notice that this is a visible sign of God's presence. It's a visible sign of of His presence among His people. And as it resided in the temple of Shiloh, the elders wanted it among them. And so they called for it. Now take notice here as they ask this question, as they jump to this solution of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, there is no reference to faith, repentance, a call to the people of Israel, no mention of seeking the heart of God. They want His power to be unleashed and they believe it to reside within the ark. And so they ask for this visible sign to be brought to the field. And this leads us to this second point. And I want to bring this up because this ark was given to Israel to show and to, to say and to proclaim even promises of God that He has promised to covenant with them and to protect them, to go before them, to be their God. And and do you notice it became somewhat of an afterthought to Israel? They get defeated and then they say, oh, perhaps we need the ark. Perhaps we need this to come be with us. And so they say, we have it back at Shiloh. Let's bring it here. This really could be our answer. And let's see a key phrase here in verse 4. Look at verse 4 where it says, And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And as we have seen, it was widely known throughout Israel, certainly amongst the elders, that these were two corrupt men that were overseeing the temple that were overseeing the worship of God, abusing it, abusing others, using other people. And so the Scripture wants us to see that they are there with the Ark of the Covenant. They, will be, they are there with it then, and they will be there with it as it comes out to the field. So with the Ark, came, with, came, coming with the Ark comes the godlessness of those that oversaw it. And so as we continue to read, and as we see this narrative The Israelites really bind to this superstition. What does the text say? They begin to shout and yell. It's a battle cry that was loud enough to frighten the Philistines who had just defeated them. Yet here's what we find out. The ark made it into battle. The priests made it into battle. The system makes it into battle, but God was not on their side in this battle. God did not join Israel here. In fact, he continues his defeat of them in battle. So here's what I want us to understand. 
and what happened here. If you're reading this for the first time or perhaps you're seeing this unfold again, perhaps you are, but if you were, this is the first time you had seen this story and you see this coming to this point and they're saying, we need the ark of the Lord. And then they bring it into the camp and Israel shouts and yells and their people are excited. Think about if you're watching this in a movie. Surely the next scene is Israel coming and defeating their enemies. They have called for the glory of God. You'd be convinced that Israel is about to demolish the Philistines. And even the Philistines feared that. They could even sense that next scene. That this is what's coming. Here is the God who led Israel out of Egypt, destroyed the Egyptians in the Red Sea. Yet it's exactly the opposite of what happens. Verse 10 tells us there's a very great slaughter. 30,000 foot soldiers fell. And not only that, but the ark was captured. The priests of Israel died, establishing the prophecy of Samuel. So here's what I hope that we can see. This is for you. This is for me. This is for Kevin. This is for those that are on the prayer team. This is for those that are leading Bible studies. This is for elders and deacons. This is for those who are counseling other people. This is for those who are doing very good things that are prescribed in Scripture. Very good, very powerful things that are prescribed. Those can be made into superstitious solutions. If we pray more, we'll see this happen. If we change our music, this will begin to take place. When things seem to fall apart, many will say, well, I probably need to study my Bible more. This will put things back together. Or perhaps I need to be in church on a more consistent basis. We as leaders will confess that we often look for the secret potion. How to have a healthy and growing church. And I remember reading about this church. This was a couple of years ago. I remember reading that this church was uh, had a... Continue, had continual years of declining membership and attendance and they bring in a consultant and the consultant says that the people that are leaving are saying that they are needing deeper study of the Word and, and they want to um, go further and have more meat in the teaching and the preaching. And so what does the church do? They listen to the consultant. And they say, this is the secret potion. And so they start deeper stuff, more teaching from the pulpit that lasted for a year because the continued to decline. Because they were looking for the secret superstitious potion that could change things. So all that I... All of those things, please know those are valuable things, things that should be pursued. But if we look to implement those things in our life so that God will respond to us when we whistle, please understand what that is, is calling ourselves into defeat. And I see the sadness and travesty of this story. And I know that we, I know that we share in this story. We share in this this travesty.
and we turn the beautiful things of God. God gave the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to Israel as a beautiful treasure to be cherished so that they would be reminded of His faithfulness. And they turned it into a superstitious solution. Where do we meet the heart of God? It's through faith and repentance. This is where He meets us in battle. Please, faith and repentance. He meets us in battle. If we go to the Word of God lacking faith and repentance, He is not meeting us in the battle. Because when we come with faith and repentance, it's there that we're losing, we're leaving our idols behind. We're leaving our commitments to the world behind, and it's there that we can actually follow Christ. Superstitious solutions simply leave us where we are. In, in this sense, we add Bible reading to our life. We add prayer to our life. Do you see what Israel said? Israel said, let us keep doing what we're doing, but let us get the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here. Bring the godless priest, but give us the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. This is calling us to stop adding prayer to a life of dishonesty. This is calling us to stop adding Bible reading and stop looking for the secret ways to have a connection with God while we continue a life of stealing or a life that is full of anxiety and worrying about our next steps, not trusting in the power of Christ. Faith and repentance say this. It tells us, I'm leaving this. I'm abandoning, abandoning this. Because I can't bring this as I trust in Christ. I must leave it. And it's saying, I'm trusting in Christ because He will take better care of me than I can take of myself. He can do this. He can accomplish this. And He is more wonderful than this idol. I don't bring this idol to Christ for Him to refine it and make it a better idol. To make it a more worthy idol instead. It's leaving it behind. So what this means is we come to Christ through faith and repentance. This means that whether your cancer diagnosis is completely gone, you're completely cancer free, or whether it has spread throughout your body, you're trusting in Christ and His faithfulness. You're willing to follow Him. And you're willing to see that He has great purpose. And you're willing to say, I love Him, I trust Him with absolutely everything. Because what we see with Israel is, is that was not a part of what they were doing. As they were looking for this superstitious solution, they surrendered the glory of God. But keep in mind, this happened long before the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. So this is what we have seen. We'll briefly run through this as we close here. God has not forsaken His judgment. The solution of Israel was a superstitious one, and now we are seeing that God's glory, we're seeing the reality that His glory has been surrendered. And can you tell at the end of this chapter that Eli and the wife of Phinehas, the, the Bible wants us to see, yes, they're devastated. Eli's devastated that he lost his sons. 
Yes, Phineas's wife is devastated that she lost her husband, but there's a greater devastation there. They are more devastated that the Ark of the Covenant of God has been captured. That is where their pain and their agony is coming from, that they are seeing the reality of what has been there perhaps their whole life, that the glory of God has departed from their lives, from their nation, from their people, and it's horrifying. And they see it through the reality that this has been captured. And can you imagine the kind of celebration that the Philistines had at this point? Here is the enemy of God's people who sees that this is, a central, this is a central thing to their identity and it's been captured. And the correct way to look at it is that not just that they captured it, but that Israel gave it up. Can you see the celebration that the world has when we, the church, gives up that which is central to our identity? And it happens all the time. And the world celebrates it. The world celebrates. They may think they're capturing it, but we're giving it to them. We're giving them our core, our identity of the faith. Now, as the pages of Scripture, as we turn these pages and we see through the prophets, and then in the Old Testament, what we see is that the judgment of God is so perfect. It's so perfect on your heart and on my heart that we see that there's a promise that the glory of God would return to earth, but this time in the flesh. And John 1 tells us that the Word dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. And I want us to see that what this means is that God the Son, because of the perfect judgment of God, because God knew you perfectly, knew your need perfectly, saw your fallenness and your shortcomings perfectly, God the Son comes to earth. And He's in battle against God's enemies. And He has defeated God's enemies. He was perfectly faithful to do the will of the Father. The only one perfectly faithful to do the will of the Father. And therefore, all the covenant promises... And all the blessings that we read about all throughout the Old Testament that are, are, are promised to a faithful Israel, the only one who accomplishes those, the only one who, who is due those promises is Jesus Christ. And those promises, those covenant promises, those blessings are found only in Him. And so on this Sunday, as we celebrate what we're celebrating, Palm Sunday, Christ rides into Jerusalem. He is the highest, the only one worthy of the blessings of the Father. Hosanna in the highest. He is the true beloved, the true Son of God, the true child of God. But He rides in on a donkey's colt. Not on a horse. Not on anything majestic. But because instead of being exalted, He comes in humble. A king headed for the slaughter. A very great slaughter. Why? Because the judgment of God that will not be forsaken. The judgment of God that God refuses to forsake turns to the Son. There will be a very great slaughter. And the Father will crush the Son who will become... He, will, he becomes His enemy so that His eternal judgment will be quenched. 
And when the promises of God, the blessings of God, the righteousness of God, when the, when the judgment of God comes to the Son, that is because He is willing for the promises of God to go to His people. And this is the Gospel. This is to tell us that He is the only one. He is the only hope. We look to it with Israel. We look to answers. We, we, we wanted a king. And he comes riding in on a donkey's colt. He humbled himself because he knew what was coming. It was not exaltation. It was humiliation. It was a very great slaughter coming. And it's because God has chosen not to forsake his judgment because he has promised us great things in Christ. He has promised to give us a land where only righteousness will fully dwell. That comes in Christ. And it's where we are headed through faith and repentance in Him. And so, I give the call of the gospel that we see here in 1 Samuel 4. We cannot put our hope in ourselves. We cannot put our hope in any kind of visible sign that we may think can bring a certain amount of power or faithfulness or presence or favor. Instead, we look to where the glory dwells, which is in Christ. And so Christ promises us salvation and then He promises us the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's only found in Him. It cannot be found in anywhere else. And that's what this season is telling us. We have one who was humbled, humiliated, tortured, slaughtered, and then he rose again to tell us what's to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, the faithfulness to your goodness. Lord, as we approach things in Scripture that are challenging to read, challenging to align with your character, May we be reminded what a blessing that you chose not to forsake judgment. Because that leads to salvation. It leads to... It's led to forgiveness. and Of course, it has led to... It has turned the agony and misery of the cross into something beautiful. And so, Lord, even as, we, even as we picture the cross for what it really is, covered in blood and a picture of torture and cursing, even as we don't put gold on a cross and spiff it up, we leave it. It's a terrible, horrible picture it's beautiful with the blood with the agony with the pain it's, there's glory there the glory has returned and we thank you Lord Father I pray that by the power of your spirit we would see that all the promises of God every promise that we see in scripture that promise is found in Christ every, not one of those promises is found outside of him there's not a single promise in our faithfulness. There's not a single promise in our goodness. There's not a single promise in our superstition. But 
There's promises in Christ. And so, Father, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, our faith would be in Him. Our repentance would be away from the things of this world and unto Him by your glory, by the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.